have today a story that begins with justice, or at least so we think. There's a man who comes to Jesus, and he comes to Jesus with what we would see as a pretty reasonable request. Teacher, tell my brother to share. Tell him to divide the inheritance with me. And, and as I say, that probably sounds very reasonable to us, doesn't it? Knowing what we know about Jesus, that probably sounds like the sort of thing that he'd endorse, that he'd latch onto, that he'd use as a teachable opportunity and moment about justice and fairness and what have you. What? Your brother is holding out on you? He's taken the bigger portion. He's keeping that inheritance all to himself. Tusk, Tusk, you bring him to me immediately and I'll tell him off in front of everyone. That's, that's sort of how we'd expect the story to go from here. But if you've got Luke 12 open in front of you, then you'll know that that's not what Jesus says. Actually, Jesus decides not to get involved in this particular dispute he says, who made me a judge between the two of you? And it's not because he's indifferent towards justice and what's fair. We've seen plenty of other occasions, different instances, where Jesus really wants to be at pains and to labour the point that justice and fairness and kindness are so, so important. It's not because he has no opinion on those things or he's indifferent towards them, but because he's spotted an even greater danger. A danger in which having what's fair might even end up causing harm. Jesus says that danger is greed. So he turns from that one man who's come to him to the wider audience and he says this, Watch out. Be on your guard against, against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. It shouldn't surprise us if Jesus has perceived something in this man's heart. He's done so before, he'll do so again, but regardless, he's putting his finger on something here that's true in all of us, that we're all prone to greed, to wanting, to having and hoarding, to keeping things to ourselves because we bought into the lie that life really is about the accumulation of stuff. We're also certain of the fact that life really is about the abundance of possessions. I don't think anybody listening this morning would argue that greed is a bad thing. We'd all happily go along with the idea that greed is one of the most poisonous and destructive forces in our entire world. That where we find greed and selfishness, self-centeredness, that there we find fertile ground for suffering and death to flourish. But by the same token, how many of us truthfully would be, as Jesus commands us to be, on our guard in our lives? We acknowledge that greed is unhelpful, undesirable, dangerous, detrimental. But how many of us would actively be pursuing lives of the opposite? Watching out, 
alert to the threat, ready to respond if it rears its ugly head in our lives. There's a gap, isn't there? There's a gap between our acknowledging the danger of greed and our action. And so Jesus shares a story to help us to see where we've gone wrong, to see how we've misunderstood what life is about. And we've even misunderstood the nature of the world that we live in. So Jesus tells a story, a parable, short packs a punch. This is what he has to say. He says that there's a man, a rich man, and his field yields him a, a miracle harvest. There is so much at the end of this season of growth that it actually becomes a problem for this man. What shall I do, he says. I don't even have enough space to store all of these crops. We perceive the danger. If he doesn't act swiftly, then all of it is going to go to waste. And he's got two options as far as he can tell. He can leave it out to the elements to let it wither as quickly as it has grown up, or he can take decisive action. He can tear down his barns and he can build bigger ones and he can store up all the overflow and the excess that this miracle harvest has brought in. You and I would probably describe his actions as wise, as prudent even. That's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and there I will store all of my surplus. Then I'll be able to say to myself, you have plenty. Take it easy. Put your feet up. Relax. Enjoy life. Enjoy an early retirement. Eat, drink, be merry. You've earned it. Up until this point in the story, we'd go along with it, wouldn't we? With the assessment that he's made of the situation. We'd go along with uh, the, the course of action that he decides to take. We'd say perhaps that he's someone to be emulated, to be imitated. Who of us, if we were faced with this once in a lifetime opportunity to fill up our pension pot and to take early retirement, who of us would not jump at the chance? But then in the story comes this twist. Because God speaks to the man and he's not as affirming of his attitudes and his actions as we would have been. You fool, says God. You see, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself, what you have stored, what you have hidden and hoarded away? What good is it to gain the whole world but to forfeit your very soul? And I'd say we have to ask ourselves the question, why our assessment of this man's actions and attitudes are so at odds with God's? Why is it that we would look at his perception of the harvest and, and the only sensible um, route to take with that superabundance of food and fruit? Why we'd look at it and we'd say, yeah, that, that seems sensible. And yet God comes and describes him as a fool. Well, the answer begins all the way back in our origins, in Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. It's the story of a God who creates and gives everything, and everything good and plentiful. And he invites us to be a part of his creating and giving and multiplying and filling. And all of this language and imagery and picture of abundance. But by the time we get to Genesis 3, there are doubts creeping in. The deceiver says to Eve and to Adam, 
This god who's put all this stuff in front of you, is he the same one who said that you're not allowed to eat any of it? Really? And Eve, at first, she tries to combat this lie, this wrong, because God hadn't really said anything of the sort. But there it is, the lie has taken its root out, has crept in, and what was forbidden has now been taken. And the idea that we live in a world where God would hold out on us, that God would deprive us, that God wouldn't provide for our every need, scarcity mentality has really set in, taken its grip, and straight hot on its heels comes death. Quite literally in the very next story that's told of Cain and his brother Abel, of, of seeing life as something that needs to be grasped at and grappled at and kept to oneself. Cain, instead of giving to benefit and to flourish the lives of those around him, he takes his brother's life. And now the roots of that weed of suspicion of God and his goodness and his ability to provide this idea that life is something that we need to wrestle control of for ourselves, that the world will never have enough for all of us. So you and I are in a battle together and only one of us can survive till the end. Those weeds have really taken down deep roots in the human heart and in every society, in every culture, ever since, uh, essentially this message has been proclaimed that there is not enough, that God is not good enough, that if you want to have, and you have to have, to really experience life, then you need to take it and you need to keep hold of it. That is the lie. The lie that life exists entirely and only when we gather and store things for ourselves. That's the lie that we have grown up in. That's the lie that we exist in day by day by day. And that's the lie that makes it so easy for us to hear this rich man's reasoning and to think that he's in the light and to be surprised when God comes and calls him a fool. But Jesus didn't buy into that lie. Jesus knew the truth. Jesus described himself as the truth, the one who has come to lead us into truth. Jesus came and he stood utterly against all of that. We've seen, haven't we, in the life of Jesus, someone who understood the fraud that is looking at the world as a place of scarcity, looking at life as something that we've got to cling on to desperately with our own two hands, even if it is at the cost of those around us. Jesus, we've seen in Luke's Gospel, is someone who understands that life, true life, is to be joined with the Father, and to join with the Father in being generous, in giving, in sacrificing even for the benefit of those around us. That's why when we see Jesus in the Gospels and he encounters folks whose view of the world is scarcity, 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 he looks so different. 
because he sees it through the lens of abundance. He sees it through the lens of God's generosity. He sees it through the lens not of a fight for survival, but an opportunity for blessing and growth. The story that jumps primarily to mind when I'm thinking about these things is the feeding of the 5,000. When the disciples cast their gaze across this vast crowd and all they see is scarcity. Too many people, not enough money, not enough food. Lord, send them away. We don't want their suffering and their pain on their conscience. Let them go, each man for himself, to fight for his own survival. But Jesus doesn't see it anywhere near like that, does he? Jesus knows the Father. He trusts the Father. He blesses the Father. And in that moment, there is a superabundance. From the pathetic number of bread and loaves and fish, there is a feeding for the entire crowd. Feeding so that they are full to the brim. Feeding so that there are baskets of overflow in the aftermath. And it's not a lesson to you and I of leaving the house without our packed lunch and then praying for miracle food when our tummies start to rumble. It's a lesson in how Jesus views the entire world and how we're supposed to view the world too. The world under a good and generous Father who gives and provides and invites us to be a part of that provision in the lives of those around us. Not a world primarily of scarcity and fighting for survival but a world that is overseen and administered by this generous God. A world actually of abundance. A world in which flourishing and growth can genuinely take place. That's why God's assessment on this individual is, you fool. And if we agree with him, then he calls us fools too. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so, yeah, this rich man is genuinely left with only these two options. Let it go to waste or build bigger barns so that you can live off the excess the rest of your days. But Jesus came and he opened our eyes to the truth. The truth which frees us to live generously and sacrificially as he lived. That life isn't about fighting against each other, fighting for survival, Life is about coming to know the Father and the Son through, uh, that he has sent. More than that, though, Jesus wasn't just about demonstrating that and showing us an example of that. Jesus was one who came to dig up those weeds of selfishness and suspicion and scarcity that have taken such deep root and have grown up such big, ugly, horrendous leaves in our lives that they have blocked out all of the light and left us only in darkness. Jesus was willing to come and to give, even to the extent of giving his own life so that we could be set free from that selfishness, so we could be set free from that suspicion of God, that we could see the truth, we could come into the light from the darkness, that we would find life when all of our lives have been leading to death. Jesus cried out on the cross, didn't he? Why am I the son forsaken? So that we, rebels, those far away, could be brought near, adopted and brought in. 
And here I am to tell you this morning that the narrative of scarcity, of survival, of me and mine is not one that leads to life. It's one that leads to death. It's one that leads to anti-life. To view the world through those lenses leads to anti-life. When we live as if there is not a generous father over and above all things, we do not excel, we do not flourish, but we shrink and we shrivel and ultimately we die. When our greatest fulfillment is the hoarding of many things, ultimately we are left empty. We are left unsatisfied. Jesus says plainly, that this is truly life, full and abundant life, to know and to be known by the Father in heaven, to be reunited with him by the Son through the Holy Spirit. And so I'm here this morning to tell you if this all sounds new to you, then Jesus is inviting you, inviting you to say no to the narrative that we've heard for years and years and years, Say no to the narrative that we read in the headlines of all the stories that tops all of the charts, that, that, that plasters all of the billboards. To say no to all of that and to say yes to him. To come to him. To come to the Father through him. And to know an abundance that goes beyond even what this rich man experienced. A kingdom. Treasures in heaven that do not perish. The invitation this morning is to reject the lie and to trust the truth that Jesus lived and to trust the truth that Jesus can bring us into that we are made by God and for God. Now the only way we can see that, the only way we can come to that truth because we are blind to it, because we are immersed in the lie, is for the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives. The Apostle Paul put it like this, that the Holy Spirit shines the light of the knowledge of God in Christ into our blind eyes, into our blind hearts. And perhaps this morning you need to do that thing, which is to take a risk and to say, Lord, by your Spirit, come and show me the truth. Do you mind if I pray with you for a moment? Pray asking God to open your eyes to the way that the world really is, to what life really is all about, not just hoarding things, but having God. Lord, help us to see in our darkness the light of Jesus. Help us to know and experience in our deaths the life of Christ. Help us to find the truth amongst the weeds of the lies. Help us to know you as our good and generous God and Father who loves us and cares for us and provides for us. Help us to find purpose and meaning beyond ourselves and survival. Help us to see that there's more to life than me and now. But there is you and us and we and life eternal. Lord, by your spirit, help us to see, we pray. Amen.
And that's a word to those perhaps who don't yet believe. But still, for those of us who have seen the truth, for those of us who have acknowledged that Jesus is the one who comes to give and frees us from selfishness, why is it that we still read this story and struggle to see what is wrong with the man's attitudes and actions? Why is it that in our hearts, perhaps, and in our, um, our heads and in our hearts, perhaps, we have acknowledged this truth that God is the Father, that Jesus is the Son, but we're not on our guard against greed. We're not watching out for it in case it rears its ugly head. We're just happily swimming along in this tide of human culture that says, me and mine and the rest be damned. You know, it is hard. It is hard having seen that truth to live that truth out because we are constantly being bombarded by the opposite. That narrative, that story that's existed since the fall, it's, it's on loudspeakers. It, it's in every corner and direction we look, every voice we hear and we listen to is telling us that life is simply about having and hoarding. And so you and I, brothers and sisters, need to be a people who are deliberately seeking out and living out the opposite. Deliberately pursuing and learning and living the truth that God is a generous God, that we are taken care of, and what we have, we have been given to enjoy and to bless and to flourish those around us. And I'm just going to suggest three things, practical things that we can do today and this week to help nudge us in that direction. To help nudge us more in the direction of reading that parable, assessing that man's actions and just thinking along with God, you fool, there was a different way. There was a better way. There was a rich towards God sort of way. Three things I'm going to suggest that we do, practical things. The first thing is this, today, today even, take a pen, take some paper and write out the words of this rich man, okay? Write them out on a piece of paper in front of you. Write out, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. And I want you to take that pen and I want you to cross it out, very deliberately cross it out as if to say, this is wrong. This is nonsense. And then below that, take that same pen and write what the man should have written down. Write out what the other options were. Write what it really would have meant to, to acknowledge God, uh, to trust in him for blessing, to trust in him not just for this one abundant harvest, but for abundance in harvests to come as well literally today, write it down, cross it out, and then put down what you think he really should have responded. Now, my guess is you're gonna find that difficult, but I suggest then you just flick forward to the next story where God is, uh, Jesus is teaching about the worries and the anxieties that come when we live life clinging on to things and the antidote of trusting to God and how he concludes. This is how he concludes. Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you 
the entire kingdom. So sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will never wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is there, your heart is also. Okay? Read that and write what the man should have said when this harvest caused him such a problem that he was worried about where he was going to keep it all safe and sound. That's the first thing. Write it out, cross it out, and then write out what he should have said. The second thing is this, take the Lord's Prayer. I don't think it's an accident that this parable comes so soon after the Lord's Prayer, but there are themes, there are images, there are overlaps. Take the Lord's Prayer. If you need to write it down, write it down as well. You can find it in Matthew, you can find it in Luke's Gospel and pray it every morning this week. Make it a deliberate part of your morning routine as you take in your coffee, as you eat your breakfast, whatever it is that you usually do. Take the Lord's Prayer and recite it or, or write it out if that's the best way for you again and again every day this week. And think about what you're praying. It's a prayer, isn't it, that lifts our focus from me and mine and up to him before anything else. It's a prayer that if we're truly praying, we cannot sit comfortably in that scarcity survival mindset because it begins with the Father who is over and above, who rules and reigns. His glory, his honour, his will, not just in heaven, but even now today here on earth. It takes our gaze off us and lifts it to him. But even then, when the switch is made in the Lord's Prayer, it doesn't turn it back in on us ourselves. I've said it before, I'll keep on saying it until we get it. It is not, give me today my daily bread. We wouldn't need to pray that because we've got more than enough. The prayer is this, give us our daily bread. Just as God created and gave and invited humanity to be part of creating more and giving and being generous. He's continuing to invite us now to take that super harvest of grain that we don't know what to do with. That we need to build bigger barns to take care of and to give food to those who are hungry. Second practical thing that we can do to help shift to help guard against greed, to help put us in a place of acknowledging the truth and rejecting the lie is to pray the Lord's Prayer every morning with these two things in mind. The Father above and those that he has put around us who are in need. How can we bless them and serve them and honour him? Take action. And then the third thing is this. Having written down a lot, having prayed a little, do this. Find something outside of yourself, outside of your family, outside of those things that, that are really just an increase of our own selfishness and sow into it. Give. Can I tell you, as I'm recording this sermon, the guys are back there in the shop in Renew. And I love Renew. It's a shop in town that's now open two days a week where people can give things in order to benefit those who are without. You know, there was a time when the only thought that ever crossed my mind, when the kids grew out of certain clothes or they became too old for certain toys is, how much can I sell this for? Where can I advertise this? And, 
not wanting to be greedy, obviously, but where can I maybe make 50% of the money back? So that profit could begin the part of the next little project that we had lined up. I love the fact that Renew now exists, where people can take the things that we value and we can give them to others that need it. It doesn't just have to be time, uh, money though, it could be um, time, it could be energy, it could be affections. Genuinely, this week, find something and give rather than hoarding. I'll give you a couple of examples from the life of the church. Charlotte was asking me this week, what is she going to do about creche? Creche needs to restart. Did you know we've only got three volunteers at the moment for creche? That's enough for creche to run one week every four. Bethan mentioned to me a couple of weeks ago that I could subtly make a request on a Sunday for Sunday school volunteers. CCC, Coffee Cake and Company, it's running at the moment and it's the same skeleton staff there, week in, week out. I ask myself, why? Perhaps it's because we've been building barns for our time and our energy and our attention. We've been hoarding those things as well as our finances and our possessions and our things. We've been hoarding them for our benefit and our benefit alone. So this week, Open your eyes, find something outside of yourself and give to it. And here's the thing, that is probably going to be scary for us. But Jesus thought it was scarier to do the opposite. Jesus says that worry and anxiety and fear really rear their heads in our lives when we're on the greedy end of the spectrum. When we're selfish, when we're self-centred. When we've given in to the lie of scarcity, he says that peace and flourishing for you even now will come when generosity is lived out. This, he says, is where life is found and enjoyed. So this week, be on your guard and take 